greener on the other side. Caterpillar to a butterfly. Bye, bye, butterfly. It's green and growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries. On 95.5 WSB. If you're just waking up with me, good Saturday morning. Ashley Frasca here in the host seat on 95.5 WSB. Of course, it's green and growing for the next hour. And great calls coming up. I may solve a marital spat, something having to do with deer ruining things in the yard. Jordan has a question. We're going to be talking about best management practices when it comes to mulching. But up first, it's Trisha calling from Loganville. Good morning. Good morning. I run a cat rescue, and I do have a couple of ferals that live outside. And I was wondering if there's any particular tree that a cat might like to gravitate to um, as far as climbing, smelling, a fragrance that they might gravitate to, where they might like. I have several on my property, but I don't know if there's any that they particularly like. So that's a good question. I cannot speak for cats and which ones they like or what smells may attract them. But just from maybe looking around my landscape, um, autumn olive or tea olive is something okay. that uh, that keeps leaves on it and it's attractive, maybe a good little place to hide. Those can get pretty large and they have a good fragrance. I have one planted right by my front door. So I like the smell. I don't know why little Miss Kitty wouldn't okay. like it. I don't know the uh, scientific name. It's called a snowball bush. I have a huge one. I'm not sure if it's fragrant, but it usually keeps leaves all winter long. So I was wondering if that might be one that you might suggest. Yeah, like a viburnum. That's in the viburnum family. Absolutely. Those Chinese snowballs, those are good too. Yeah, I mean, just a good little place to hide out, you know. I thought they might like something they can shade themselves in. You know, and as far as the climbing goes, I've got a great, really well-established southern magnolia tree, you know, that keeps its leaves on it all year round, the big, glossy (laughs) green leaves. And my branch structure in that tree starts pretty low. So if they were to climb it, they'd be able to get out to some branches pretty quickly. Um, That might be one that's kind of interesting. Now, yes. I'm glad you called with this, though, because it made me think of, and this is always kind of a a point I want to hit when we talk about plants outdoors, even our indoor house plants, too, being mindful that when you introduce those into your home, what's toxic for cats and dogs and things like that. So I'll also kind of on the flip side, Tricia, give you some that maybe are not safe, are not good for our pet friends. The American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, ASPCA as we know it, uh, publishes a list and they constantly update this list of things that are definitely 100% toxic to our feline friends. So outdoors, you're thinking about you'd want to keep them away from most fruit trees, believe it or not. Black cherry, apple, plum, peach, regular cherry trees, don't know what it is in the in the in the tree that is toxic to cats. Um, China berry tree, that's not a good one either. Indoor house plants, and a lot of us are, you know, big adopters on these big, beautiful fiddle leaf figs and some things from the philodendron family, and those are listed as toxic to cats. So fiddle leaf fig, you got to be careful. Now, if you have a cat that that doesn't mind it, doesn't bother it, I mean, if they just sleep on the top of the pot, sleep on the soil surface. They're not really going to harm anything. But if they're curious, if they're chewers, that kind of thing. Uh, fiddle leaf fig. Diffenbachia, that's a really common house plant. A lot of folks have dumb cane, also called dumb cane. That's going to be toxic. Um, from the philodendron family, like I mentioned, Swiss cheese plant. That's another one where the leaves physically have holes and look like Swiss cheese. That's toxic to them. Um, and something indoor, Trisha, if you're talking about, you know, other than their little climbing condos and climbing towers and things like that, things that they might enjoy that they could safely be around. 
would be like a parlor palm, and that's a nice feature for you, a parlor palm or a banana tree. Some folks keep banana trees in pots and, and bring them in for the winter time. That's going to be safe. And a money tree. I know that's not really like a tree like we think because it's so little, like a bonsai in a little pot, but a money tree, they're not going to be harmed by that either. So outdoor landscape, I would say almost anything goes though, Trisha. But yeah, just kind of look around and and if it's something that berries and if it's something that drops a lot of berries too, you may want to look that tree up and just make sure if the cats are curious and start to eat those berries, whether or not those are considered toxic. Thank you so much for the information. I'll definitely go on the ASPCA website and look up some more of those outdoor trees that are dangerous. That is definitely the first time I've ever gotten that question, but I'm really glad because it did give us the opportunity to discuss what's toxic, what's not good for them. But yeah, if any if any cat lovers just have trees outside, big oaks or something that the cats can just scale really easily and love hiding out and love the shade, let us know. And thanks for the work you do for a cat rescue, Trisha. I think that's really sweet. Calling from Statham, it's Christine. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Ashley. Uh, My husband and I planted three fruit trees on our property last year, and uh, we have deer. Uh, He calls them deer. I call them venison. Uh, He he said, oh, I'll just spray the deer repellent on the trees, and that will keep them away. Well, I'm down to about four leaves on my cherry tree. I'm ready to put a net on my husband. I wanted to put (laughs) nets on the trees. But he didn't want me to do that. He said, no, I'll just spray the deer repellent, but the deer got to them. So my question is, do you think my cherry tree will make it, or should I just order one and get it in the ground as quickly as possible? It's it's tough to tell. I mean, obviously the tree is going to need what leaves it has you know, to be able to do its processes and all of that. But Christine, go ahead, and if there's a, a twig or a limb or something that you can start to like you know, see if it's pliable or not. I mean, if it just breaks off right away, then it's a goner. But if there's still a little flexibility in that limb and it doesn't break off, it's got some green in it, if you actually do break it off or prune it off, the tree may be okay because it just depends on how far established the root system got. If the root system is somewhat comfortable and cozy down there, I think it's got a better chance of of bouncing back. But the netting, I mean, as long as your husband's standing right by that tree and you throw the net over both, um, the, the netting's not going <laughs> to be a bad thing. I wouldn't hesitate to do that. And of course, early, you know, young, immature trees, something like a tomato cage or something, or any kind of boxed in maybe cattle panel or something that folks can use too, that you've got to be able to at least open up a little bit, you know, get to things on the ground, get to in there when it needs to be pruned. But you've got a few options. I know fencing for a large property is not ideal. What, uh, well, without naming the brand names, what kind of repellents did y'all use that just didn't work? I'm curious. Well, they, they, I think they work unless it rains, oh, and yeah, he doesn't right. he doesn't respray. I love him dearly. Um, yeah, he's a good guy, he, and he's not even listening, so he doesn't know we're talking about him. It's okay. <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, he's he's a great guy. He he dug the holes. I love him for that. Um, but and and the deer are. Oh, Christine, I think we're starting to lose you there. The deer are pretty uh, pretty persistent. And it's just, you know, and it's a matter, too, of the damage. Like if if some of you have older trees and you see the bark damaged on the trunk where they're rutting, you know, when they go into mating season and all that and they're rutting and they're rubbing their antlers and stuff up against the bark, that's easily prevented as well by little tree shelters. Folks use some kind of PVC piping and all of that for a little while during those seasons to be able to protect the uh, trunks. But I don't know. It may not be all for naught, Christine. You may still have 
some good luck with that. Just really keep an eye on it. Don't do anything to stress it. Obviously, now is not the time to fertilize. Make sure it maintains consistent moisture. If we go through a little period uh, where we're not going to have any rain, make sure to water it deeply. I would do the best you can to see if it's going to stay alive, but it may be okay. Thank you so much for the call. Up next, we've got Jordan calling from Hiram. Good morning, Jordan. Hey, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah. Hey, I wanted to call and see, um, we've got two small little mulch beds out front. Uh, one has a, a scarlet oak in it, and one has some Indian hawthorn in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm just going to try to redo the, those mulch beds today, just remulch them. Uh, the Indian hawthorn has some some disease on it that we talked to our local extension agent about and have tried for the past year to fight it yeah. um, and can't seem to get rid of it because I think the leaves are falling down into the bed and just sitting, sitting there and staying there. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering, to prepare a mulch bed, is there anything I need to do? Do I need to put down like a weed barrier or anything like that? Um, Well, first of all, good like hygiene practices are going to be your number one best preventative on that. And I pulled out Indian hawthorn at the house about 10 years ago because they got that leaf spot. And they were just defoliating really quickly. The leaves looked terrible. Um, And I just couldn't get ahead of it, nor did I want to. I wanted to plant something else anyways. So they may ultimately be a goner, unfortunately. But when I talk about hygiene and best management practices, too, normally you can lay new mulch on top of existing mulch. All it's going to do is cause the older mulch to break down, you know, add nitrogen to the soil and good contents and all of that stuff. But in this case, I would rake back and remove everything that you can from underneath the Indian hawthorn before you put new mulch down because that disease on that leaf spot is just going to keep sitting there and it's going to harbor some bad things chilling on the soil surface. Okay. Well, if you don't mind me asking, what did you put down in place of it, just as a recommendation? I did a couple of Encore azaleas. Um, I did a tea olive, which an autumn olive, which that was a huge mistake because that gets really big. But what I have in the back is the Laura Petalum, the Chinese fringe. So that's the mm-hmm. purple leaves. And then the Indian hawthorn in the front, it was a pretty color contrast because they're, you know, red and green leaves and things like that. Um, what might be good instead, too, is abelia. Abelia is some of those same colors. They get white flowers, just like Indian hawthorn. The bush itself, the shrub itself, looks a little more delicate. Like an Indian hawthorn is pretty sturdy. Um, but I would maybe look into abelia. That may be like as far as color flow, that may be kind of similar. Um, and abelia is not really apt to too many diseases that I'm aware of. I mean, if you want to hang in there with the Indian hawthorn, see what they do. But that light leaf spot's just not good. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm glad you called, Jordan. Good thinking. I mean, save yourself the trouble. You know, let's do it right the first time and put the mulch down the way it needs to be put. That way you're not kicking yourself later being like, ah, I should have pulled it back. But yeah, if there's any diseased leaves underneath roses, underneath something like that, um, even we talked a lot about fruit trees. If there's rotted fruit and things like that under the fruit trees, any of that going into this time of year needs to be removed from the scene. That way things are, you know, pathogens aren't going to continue to spread and all of that. Jordan, glad you called. Gotta run. It's 95.5 WSB. Hey, welcome back to Green and Growing. A little bit of the show left, and we have reserved this time every Saturday for the month of October for Seth Hawkins, a forester with the Georgia Forestry Commission. And I love that uh, crews along North Georgia have been keeping an eye out for us of the leaf change and the leaf color. So Seth's here to update kind of what we're seeing this weekend. Hey, Seth, thanks for coming back. 
Hey, Ashley, how are y'all this morning? Very good. And so this is really something, you know, people take a drive. I mean, they go up to J, they go up to northeast Georgia just to see the leaf change and experience the mountains and all of that. So between the three sectors, you guys kind of break it up into northwest Georgia, north central Georgia, northeast. Where are we seeing the most leaf color right now? Yeah, so you're definitely going to see the most leaf color in the higher elevation. So obviously that's going to shade to the northeast and then the north central section. So we're seeing... Above that 2,500, 3,000-foot mark is where we're seeing, you know, 25 to 30-plus percent of, you know, leaf color change to date from green. You get over to the northwest, it's, you know, obviously lesser elevation, so you're not getting quite as much fall leaf color, but you get up to that 1,500, 2,000-foot elevation mark, that's when you'll see the most in the northwest. All those places, northwest, north-central, northeast, um, you know, for your reds and oranges, you know, it's awesome for the people in the cars. The roadsides are some of the best places because you get those understory species, the sumac, the sassafras, the sourwood, the dogwood, which those for the reds and oranges are pretty much at their peak across the state right now up there. You know, it, I noticed dogwood specifically. It's funny you mentioned that because I was at Oakland Cemetery um, a few days ago and just in my part of Cherokee County. At a distance, a dogwood would almost look dead, but you get a little closer and it is just such a deep, deep red and the leaves are starting to curl. But those went early this year. Yeah, yeah, the dogwoods are usually one of the first to go, and that's, you know, they're they're not as dependent on elevation. So, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm over in the Rome area, and, you know, not much elevation here, and the dogwoods here are all turning that nice and red and purple. Uh, so, yeah, dogwoods are usually one of the first to come, and they are actually at their peak, um, kind of regardless of elevation right now. They're looking great. They really are. And, you, you know, you see the little red berries that they drop, too. You see those on the ground. So, folks, if y'all see those, that's where they're coming from. They're coming from a dogwood tree. Or maybe magnolias, when the magnolias have the combs, like when the— Flowers are done, right, Seth? They have red berries in them, too. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, definitely, that's an extra feature to magnolia and dogwood this time of year beyond, you know, obviously magnolia doesn't have the leaf color, but those pods, those magnolia pods, provide that really cool um, just leading into the holiday kind of feel I always feel like. Beyond the reds, you know, the, the hickories and the birches and even the red buds are really starting to come in with some of their yellows, again, at those higher elevations. And even up about, you know, 3,000 foot, some of the oaks are coming in with some yellows on the tips and the oaks are really starting to turn red up about the 3,000 foot mark. Okay, so when we're thinking about, you know, 3,000 feet above, uh, above sea level, the elevation there, north central, northeast Georgia, give us kind of a good scenic drive through north central Georgia. You know, anywhere up around uh, Brasstown Balls right now is, you know, that's going to get you up to those elevations you're looking for. Um, and obviously that's going to provide, you know, nice, nice rides. So Georgia 180 from Bogle State Park over to Suches also provides a lot of opportunity for elevation change and different aspects um, and slopes. So you get a lot of good color change there. And driving over towards Hiawassee obviously has some great elevation, great fall color right now. If you're over that way, watch out for, your, uh, for extra traffic from the Brew, Stew, and Q Festival. Um, or pull over and get you some refreshment while you're out doing your leaf watching this year. That certainly sounds like a plan. And hey, Seth, if they want to learn more, where do they find you online? Please go to our website, gatrees.org. There's an awesome fall leaf color watch page on our website on the homepage. Such good info. And when you post your own leaf change, color, and all of, that, of those observations, hashtag GA Leaf Watch. Good reminder. Coming up, Pike Nurseries with information about camellias. Stay tuned. It's green and growing on WSB. It's green and growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries. On 95.5 WSB. Hey, 
almost done with hour number three, the final hour of Green and Growing. Glad you're here, Ashley Frasca. My gosh, it's been a full show. My head is ready to explode. One of the highlights, one of the fun things, though, was talking to Jim Putnam, host of Port Tube. I always like having really experienced gardeners as my guests, and that's why we bring on the folks at Pike Nursery as well. A great uh, conversation earlier in the show about camellias. And now I have Charles Lampkin, the manager at the Marietta Pike Nursery, to delve a little bit deeper into camellias and folks that may want them and why and how to make them succeed. So, Charles, good morning. Good morning, Ashton. It's great to hear from you. You too. Welcome back. So, this is really neat, and it just worked out this way. You know, the Southern Living Plant Collection, they provide you all with a lot of the plants that you sell. And two of Jim's favorites are um, in stock at Pike Nursery Store, and he got folks really excited about the Shishi and the October Magic Series. So tell us a little bit, basically, about what someone needs to be picturing when we talk about camellias. All right. So if if we want to start on those two first, Shishi Gashira is an old is an old time classic. There's a newer shishi breed that's now a white shishi, and that's what Mr. Putnam may have been regarding to. And then the October Magic series is a wonderful collection of Sasanqua-type camellias um, that are going to be your your late fall blooming ones that come in an array of whites, pinks, reds, and there's a really cool like mother of pearl color too. Um, and and in those varieties, you're going to have some that only get up to four feet tall, some that get six, some that get eight. Um, but that's that's kind of like the, the good thing about these camellias. So they are a Southern Living Collection. They were, um, they were bred and hybridized in Southern Alabama, so they're really acclimated to our climates. And over, I'd say over the past two or three years, they've really, really taken into the market. It's amazing. They're, they're really resistant plants. But tell us about what is it that, that makes the camellia almost a plant that has year-round interest? So we can start with there are two classes of camellias. And within these two classes, there's thousands of varieties. But we really want to start with this really easy. Sasanqua camellias are your early, uh, late fall to early winter bloomers. Um, they're your classic Single blooms, very, very um, simple blooms. They're usually single blooms, um, generally have a, a yellow center. They're not as ornate as your other type of camellias, but what you get out of your Sasanqua camellias are a lot more buds and a lot more blooms. These uh, these camellias are going to bloom sometime between Thanksgiving and, and maybe into December. Um, and the Southern Living Collection line is in this family of Sasanquas. Um, and then you have your Yuletide Camellia, which is your pr- probably most popular Sasanqua, which is that red with the deep yellow center. Mm, yeah. And I like the Sasanquas. They can handle a little bit more sun than, than your Japonica types can that we're going to talk about next. And especially that Southern Living Collection can, can tolerate a little more sun. I want to plant them in full afternoon sun. But they are uh, they are capable of uh, tolerating a little more a little more heat during the day. All right, and the, the way I remember the difference too, now that we're going to be talking about Japonica, is J and January starts with a J as well. So those are the later blooming ones, and probably a little more intricate of a flower, wouldn't you say? Very ornate blooms, um, tons of petals. I think your Nuccio series, whether it's your Bella Rosa or gem or pearl are really good examples of just how beautiful and ornate these blooms are. 
Um, so yes, January, February into March even. So if you can plant both of these camellias in different spots, or you can have them kind of around the same area, you're looking at blooms from October all the way into possibly early March. And that's in your landscape during that time of the year, you know, there's not a lot blooming. And when they're not in bloom, very glossy foliage. The japonicas have a lot much larger leaf than the sasanquas, but they really stand out and can make a good hedge, can make a good focal point. And after years, if if you need to, you can tree form it and have it have it tree formed in your yard as well. You know, I'm glad you said that, Charles, speaking with Charles Lampkin of Pike Nursery about camellias, today's topic, um, that they make a good hedge. And, you know, Walter and I have always kind of beat our heads against the wall for years when people want a privacy shrub. And, you know, I think people go to like conifers and evergreens in that realm. But really, depending on, you know, the height you're after, a camellia might not be a bad consideration for a privacy hedge. And it's it's an awful pretty one, isn't it? It, it is, and and you're and you're right. Conifers, hollies, ligustrum, you know, those are your staples for for making hedges. But why not have a hedge that that blooms and is capable of blooming almost four to six months out of the year? Yeah. So between a sasanko and a japonica, you do you get up to six months of blooms throughout the year, half a year to enjoy those flowers. Um, one last thing before we let you go, Charles, is tell me about the uh, soil needs and how I'm going to properly plant and install a camellia. All right, so like a lot of our southern staples, uh, azaleas, gardenias, camellias fall into the same uh, family of loving, acidic, loving soils. Um, so you're going to want to prep the soil with a soil amendment that is geared for those type of plants. Um, fertilizing holytone, let's, let's keep it very simple, holytone, which everyone knows you're going to fertilize these in early spring um, and late fall as well. And in your in your conditions, again, sasanquas are able to tolerate a little more sun. Japonicas, maybe uh, morning light to filtered sun uh, during the day where you plant those. But yeah, great acidic loving plants. Um, make sure that the soil amendment is geared toward those plants and, and give them that, that good old fashioned holly tone to make them perk up and bloom through the year. And now's a good time to do your planting. Of course, we have said that for months now, fall and early winter. Um, and these fall into the category of a tree and or shrub or both, Charles. So they're guaranteed for life, right? That is correct. And how that works is if for some reason the plant doesn't work out for you, you can bring the plant in and we either replace it with the same variety of plant or give you a merchandise credit for the price of the plant. That is so cool. But but follow Charles's advice. Plant it right the first time. Save the plant's life. Save yourself the trouble of having to dig it out and drag it back into a pike nursery. But I think you could be very successful. And tell us again, which one prefers more sun than the other? The Sankos are going to be able to handle um, a little bit more sun than your Japonica camellias are. Okay. And that, that includes that Southern Living collection, that October Magic collection. All right. And we can see pictures of these camellia varieties and others by following Pike Nurseries on Instagram and, of course, at pikenursery.com. Well, Charles, I'm glad to have you back. What a great, fun topic to talk about. Have a good weekend, my friend, and go Braves, right? All right. You do the same. Yes, ma'am. Thanks. What a way to end the show, talking about something that's so beautiful, evergreen, year-round interest. Again, visit Pike Nursery to see the latest collections of 
camellia plants. And right now you're enjoying the end, kind of the tail end of the sasanquas that are blooming. And you see the buds just ready to open up on those japonicas, maybe as early as the beginning of January. Well, coming up, I had another quick visit, uh, another Ashley field trip, this one to Oakland Cemetery, where I got to uh, walk the gardens and the cemetery, the grounds, with their director of gardening, Sarah Henderson. A couple of thoughts from her and things you've got to see there in the middle of the city. Stay tuned. It's green and growing on WSB. The update on the weather brought to you by Finley Roofing, wrapping things up on this weekend before Halloween. So I have a special treat from you from Oakland Cemetery in the city. But first, got to let you know how to be productive this week. Green Green and growing. Ashley Frasca's top three things to do this weekend. All right. Number one, it is time to divide irises and daylilies as their leaves fade. My friend Michael just got that done. It's quite the task. Number two, trim tropical hibiscus and plan to move indoors. Remember to not put near a drafty door, window, or vent. And next Saturday, I'm going to have questions about all of that, moving your house plants from outside to inside with Walter Reeves. And number three, start working to eliminate invasive vines like kudzu, poison ivy, and other weedy vines. They're more susceptible to chemical control this time of year. you got to start off manually, just removing as much as you can, and then start to use those brush killer products. Repeat applications of such products like BioAdvanced Brush Killer or Ortho Ground Clear is really going to help you out. And I'll give you a bonus number four. Maybe you heard it earlier in the show. Becky Griffin of the Georgia Pollinator Census went and saw she and Ray Covington up at the Blairsville campus of the University of Georgia. And she says, you know what? Leave behind your leaf litter. It helps some bugs, beneficial insects over winter, keeps them warm, and it just keeps the ground insulated. Also gives birds something to look for when they're looking for those insects in the leaves. So Don't always be so quick to use the leaf blower. Okay, so I hosted a group of WSB Carathon donors from back in July. They donated to take a trip with me through Oakland Cemetery for a garden tour. The director of gardens, Sarah Henderson, and we really had a good time about a week ago. It's a week before Halloween, so why not, right? Spent the afternoon at Oakland Cemetery in the heart of Atlanta with Sarah Henderson, the director of gardens here at Oakland Cemetery. How long have you gotten to enjoy this job? How long have I gotten? Oh, my goodness. Um, I've been doing this job since 2006 in certain ways, but I was not on staff until 2012. It's funny, the group that we were with during the tour today, Sarah, we had one person speak up, and as soon as she walked into Oakland Cemetery, saw the gate that the word park was on there as well. Folks that aren't familiar with this, explain the park part. Oakland is officially a city of Atlanta Park. When it was founded in 1850, it was intended to be a place for the living as much as for the dead. So it has worked as a park long before we even had a parks department. Oakland was one of the first properties, it was not the first, but one of the first properties to be brought under the umbrella of the parks department when it actually became official. So we've been a park from basically 1850 on. And for gardeners too, I mean, I keep telling you in this walk, Every different direction I look, I see something new. I see something that I didn't expect to see. How do you, as director of gardens, determine what plants to use and where to best utilize them? Oh, I could take all day on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, we try to use plants from the Victorian era. For our purposes, I think of it as through World War I. Um, Technically, Victorian era ends about uh, 1910 or 11, but we don't think just because Queen Victoria passed away that people all of a sudden started gardening with different plants. 
And the world wars were very much turning points for the gardening world. So we kind of use that as our general rule. And we go back to the writings of Liberty Hyde Bailey in the early 1900s. If it is in his writings, his cyclopedia only included things that were in the trade. We can pretty well assume that they were available during that era. Whether they were here or not is another story. If they're suitable to this climate is the next, you know, kind of thing to check on. And then we look through more local writings or nursery catalogs, you know, like Fruitlands in Augusta and places that are more regional. So that's our first thing. And then we look at a lot and try to determine when its main period of significance would be. Most of them are going to be Victorian, but in some cases it's very clear that they completely changed everything, say, in the 1940s. And if that's the case, we're going to plant them very differently because gardening practices, as far as cemetery lots and so forth, they have fashion. And so as fashion changed, the styles changed, and we try to reflect those things. So beyond that, we try to have beauty. We try to have plants that are so adapted that they're low maintenance. And we try to have things blooming and beautiful year-round. And this is maybe putting you on the spot, but tell me the furthest you had to travel for the proper era plant and what it was. Can you even think? To travel for them is probably Alabama, but to get them, I've been shipping in heirloom iris from all over the country where you can find the really ones that date back to the 1800s. Thankfully, they, they mail very easily, so that's something you can mail order very readily, and we have been buying iris you know, one rhizome at a time of these precious ones and planting them out and growing them on, you know, so that we can divide them and make more of them. So those, if I find one and it's in Timbuktu, yeah, I'll bring those in. (laughs) We're in fall and I love this time of year and you've got reblooming irises. There's abelia that looks beautiful. There's even some sedum. Going into the winter months, you did mention there needs to always be something of interest, something in bloom. What are maybe two or three plants folks should look out for if they come in the cold months? They can pretty well assume that they will see camellias. The sasanquas are blooming now. The japonicas are starting to come in. Our prunus mumes will come in about the change of year. Of course, the Lenten roses and the hellebores and things like that. The rosemary will be blooming throughout the winter. We have very early blooming bulbs, Iris angicularis, which is the Algerian iris that blooms in the wintertime. There's just lots going on. It's not going to be a huge expanse of color, but we try to also, of course, have evergreens in structure that make it look welcoming year-round. And that's the show for this Saturday. Really glad you were here. Thank you so much. We'll be back next Saturday, the day before Halloween. Have a great weekend. You're listening to 95.5 WSB. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.